Michael Osterlink here talking to Steve Forrester. He is a he's the president of New World University, a writer, a technologist, and educator. He alternates between the Washington D.C. metro area and the Commonwealth of Dominica in the West Indies. Did I do that correctly, Steve? Or the <laughs> Dominica. Dominica. See, wow, five seconds was too long for me to do that correctly. Uh, Steve, it's great to great to see you. Great to talk to you. I have to acknowledge our mutual friend, and from what I understand, your colleague, Kevin Rollins, who introduced us. Um, Kevin, I've known for an awful long time, and I have to assume one of the reasons he brought us together is because he knows my, kind of my interest in uh, post-conventional education and anything useful that's kind of disrupting the status quo, and uh, that's what you are doing. Um, before we kind of get into New World University, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to the position you now are in disrupting education? Uh, sure. Uh, I actually became interested in um, first being involved in online education in 1998. I attended a conference um, when the internet was new before there was Google or, or Facebook or anything like that. And uh, it was a conference where we were all getting together to talk about this new internet and all the ways that it was going to change the way we do basically everything. Um, a lot of things we got wrong or speakers at this conference got wrong, but you know, some of them, you know, we, we anticipated pretty well. One of the things that we talked about was education. And um, we had a couple conversations about, you know, what if you had a university, but on the internet, which, you know, in 1998, that was, you know, that was a, a wow producing kind of sentiment. Now it's sort of, you know, everyone has moved in that direction, including some of the most traditional universities out there. Uh, but that was uh, that was an idea that we discussed back then. And, you know, life got in the way. I ended up doing doing some other things. Um, I worked for, uh, for eGold, anyone who remembers uh, digital gold currencies, the sort of forerunners of Bitcoin and that sort of thing. Um, uh, did that for a while, ran an offshore gold brokerage in Dominica. That's how I became familiar with the place. Oh, nice, nice. Um, and then let's see, um, was doing that and then 9-11 happened mm -hmm. and George W. Bush went on world television and said, if you're not with us, then you're with the terrorists. And I thought, he's talking to me. So maybe that education thing, everybody likes educators, right? I mean, this is obviously before Boko Haram, um, but maybe that would be a much better thing to do and, and honestly more rewarding. Anyway, so I took some, uh, some staff positions um, so that I could learn what to do in higher education. Um, ended up probably learning more what not to do, um, but that's okay. That's valuable too. Um, there's no, no, uh, no harm in learning from other people's mistakes. Right, right. Um, and then I guess, how many years ago has it been? Uh, several years ago now, um, we decided to move forward and actually put together this institution. And it, you know, the vision of it had changed from, you know, 1998, um, actually pretty profoundly because now we were trying to put together some, um, some developments, especially in, you know, sort of, um, let's see, like um, competency-based education or MOOCs had come on the scene by then um, and open educational resources. I was involved in that movement from, um, from pretty early as a sort of outgrowth of my interest in open source software in the 90s. Um, and it turned out that a lot of these sorts of advancements in education fit together pretty well. 
And all of them um, had the advantage of leading to lower costs for students. Um, the international focus came from, uh, from my time in Dominica, but also uh, when I was in the States working for various universities, um, I tended to work with international students. And I got to talk with them, I got to know them, and to hear about what drew them to you know, cross an ocean in order to come to university in the States. Why not simply do that at home? Um, and obviously, individuals all have their individual reasons, but there were a couple of things that kept coming up, and one of them was simply that there weren't good options where they were, and if they wanted to get a decent education, then they would either have to, then they would have to go abroad, basically. So we started to focus on how we could maybe help to make a dent in that problem. Nice. So speaking of education, you actually have your undergraduate in information systems, if I'm correct. That's right. And graduate work um, here in Washington, D.C. area at uh, George Washington University in technology and, and uh, leadership. Yeah, educational technology leadership. Nice. So before we kind of get into what you're doing at New World University, and you just talked a little bit about what you learned from some of the students you encountered over the years, um, and knowing Kevin, knowing my interest in kind of a post-conventional approach to education, can you kind of lay out the critique that you went into this world with, having done both your own uh, college and graduate work, having worked within universities, kind of the limitations of the systems as they are presently constituted, or at least were presently constituted, and where we where you see us heading into. And I'm curious if you can kind of connect that back into the first conversations you had in 98, which is kind of like, you know, even before all this was even possible. Um, well, oh gosh, a bunch of ways of approaching that. Um, one, um, my undergrad, uh, Charter Oak State College is actually a very special sort of institution. Um, it's a state school, um, but it also was a, was a pioneer of competency-based education. And it's possible to to earn a bachelor's degree from them, um, basically consisting entirely or almost entirely of transfer credit hmm. with, with all of the other requirements um, being able to be fulfilled by uh, credit by examination or portfolio evaluation wow. um, or a variety of other, um, uh, a, a variety of other means that it's interesting that we're starting to talk about more and more today, um, but they've been doing this for, for decades. They were started in uh, 1973. Um, so it's, it's interesting how some of these options have, have really always been around. They just, they haven't been popular. They haven't been well known. Um, but that's, you know, now that they're becoming more generally, um, aware, um, they have the advantage of showing over the course of a long period of time that there's, uh, that they're workable, that they're legitimate, that they're, uh, that they're stable, that they're sustainable. Um, so let's see. Um, Let me do a favor, if you don't mind. Just look, if you don't mind, we can stick with um, 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 that you, the college you were just talking about. Talk to talk to me about so you, you can bring in credit from other universities and other colleges. But you talk about portfolios and other ways of bringing in pre-learning that you already had. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's really interesting and a and a useful model and one that I think actually preceded conventional education to begin with. Because you know you would have a mentor who might teach you law, as an example. Sure. You know, law school. <laughs> you know, right. I think things along those a lines. Abraham Lincoln's way of doing it. Yeah, exactly what's crossed my mind. Um, they, uh, I actually, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the, the portfolio evaluation method of doing it. Um, when I was finishing my degree, I didn't, I didn't use that process. Okay. I found that credit by examination was just 
faster. So I went ahead and did that. But the, as I understand it, the, the process is, you know, you can, you can document what you have learned from non-academic sources, whether it's work experience or independent study, um, and put together sort of a, you know, evidence that you have, that you have learned the, uh, the, the materials that would otherwise have been covered by a particular course. And on doing that, then that portfolio is evaluated and credit is awarded as if the course had been completed. And That's, you also test out, you said, too? Mm-hmm. Testing out, which I think is more common, um, and at least in my experience was just a lot easier. I mean, um, there were a number of, I mean, an, you know, an intro to IT exam, uh, I didn't study for that. I just went in and took it because I'd already worked in the field. I mean, I knew what I was doing. Um, so why shouldn't I, you know, it's, uh, why shouldn't anyone, you know, it's, uh, I know a lot of times when people think about a university education, a lot of times people think of it as, you know, something they just kind of have to get through. They need to check the box and that sort of thing. Um, or that it's a sort of a, a signaling device that sort of indicates that, you know, you've been willing to put your nose to the grindstone and achieve a long-term goal and so forth. Um, but if, if the purpose of a degree is to show that the person knows a particular body of knowledge, then if they know that body of knowledge, then why shouldn't they have the degree? Right on. Yeah, it's actually interesting because a conversation I just had with my wife a couple of days ago is she, she spoke to an Uber driver mm-hmm. who I believe was, I don't know if he was a medical doctor or a PhD from his home country, sure. but he had to drive an Uber because his degree didn't transfer to the United States. And I, and I didn't have the language that you're now providing to me, but I thought, you know, why can't he just test out? You know, why can't he come here and show that he has, if he has this, he or she has the same knowledge, then let him practice whatever it is. If he doesn't, then obviously he has some learning to, or he or she has some learning to take care of. Sure. And there, there is a process for foreign trained uh, medical doctors, uh, US MLEs. Um, it's, it's a pretty, pretty grueling set of exams and there's, there's more than one. It takes a while. So uh, that's not the first time I've heard of somebody who, uh, who was an MD where they were and had came here and, you know, either thought that process was too, you know, too, too cumbersome or decided to, you know, do some other approach and that sort of thing. Or in some cases there, and this is not my area either. We don't, we don't do anything medical, but um, there's uh, access to residencies can be an issue too. So there are some, some barriers to foreign trained medical doctors. Well, it seemed to me that we want to, uh, if they're qualified, allow them to come here and work because they're definitely uh, underserved populations when it comes to medicine. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your work at the New World University and kind of disrupting the education system. So talk to us about what, for, what led you from 1998 to start having these conversations around how we can create a whole new paradigm in education to creating the New World University. Walk me through that path. So during, um, during the 2000s, one of the things that um, some, some colleagues and I had done is start um, a nonprofit organization called the Free Curricula Center. And that stemmed from our interest in open educational resources. Open educational resources are curricular materials that are, are, that are up where a particular public license is applied that allows anyone to use them, copy them, modify them, make adaptations of them and so forth, release them. Um, it's, a, it's an alternative approach to the sort of copyright permission culture that one typically finds with commercial publishers of textbooks and so forth. Um, and this, uh, this movement uh, stemmed, I, 
I think originally it stemmed from what was being done with um, open source software. It's conceptually very similar. Um, but um, but as applied to, to education, the goal was, you know, manyfold. One, to reduce co uh, costs for students, but, um, but also to give instructors, institutions, uh, more freedom about the materials that they were using so that they could, um, they could optimize their particular approach for the student body that they had. Um, we were active doing that for, for, for a while. Um, we tried to, to adapt textbooks. Uh, we tried to put together some, um, some packaged up Moodle courses that were then uh, freely released so that uh, institutions could use those if they wanted to um, become uh, more active with, um, with online education. But ultimately, the, the goal was to offer courses ourselves and to move forward with that direction. So uh, New World University became an outgrowth of the Free Curricula Center. So talk me through New, New World University. I'm a, f a foreign student, I guess, of any age or is a particular age? That, uh, no, any age. Demographic. And I want to study what and how do I find out about you and how does the process work and what's the studies actually look like? Sure. So first, we're based in the Commonwealth of Dominica. Dominica. Um, um, but our students so far are... Um, are in a number of sub-Saharan African countries, uh, okay. Nigeria, Mali, and Uganda, wow. especially Nigeria. And I'll talk about Nigeria the most. Okay. Um, one of our partners is located in Lagos, Nigeria, and he operates a study center. And I'll explain that in a, in a minute. But basically, what we've done is separated assessment from instruction. And students of ours will earn credit by passing a high-stakes assessment an exam and how they prepare for that exam is up to them. So if you're familiar with things like CLEP and DSST, then it works similarly to that. Um, people might prepare by reviewing the materials that we make freely available. Uh, they might prepare because they have already amassed a lot of work experience in that area and they already know that any reasonable exam in that area, they'll already just pass it and just take it. And that's fine too. Um, they may decide that they want third party support in order to teach them the things that they need to know in order to pass that assessment. And that's, that's actually where, where the learning centers come in. They're independent third party organizations that provide tutorial assistance to students who are interested in preparing for our assessments. So in the same way that like, let's say that you wanted to do well on the GREs cause you want to go to grad school. Um, you might go to a, you know, some center somewhere that offers GRE prep and you would learn what you need to know in order to do better on that particular exam. Our model is basically the same. Um, for any of your listeners who are familiar with the University of London international programs, we're kind of on that model as well, but that's something that I found that Americans tend to not know a lot about. So, Are, are you offering like a, a standard curriculum that where you'd find if you went to any college or math, English, or whatever language you might be teaching, sciences, literature, I mean, kind of like liberal oh. arts, or are you focusing on particular areas of study? We're focused on professional studies. Right now, we're offering a one-year certificate, a two-year diploma, and a three-year Bachelor of Science degree in international business leadership. Um, we plan to add 
a similar set of programs in economics and public policy aimed at civil servants and, and folks like that. Um, we'd also like to do a similar set of programs in information systems, probably for generalists. Um, we'd like to do um, a bachelor of education program for school teachers. Um, if you go around the world, you'd find that there are an awful lot of, of cases where, where somebody is you know, the, the best student in their high school and they turn around the next year and they're in front of the class teaching it rather than being a student in it. And we want to develop a program that will provide those sorts of individuals with the support they need in order to do the best job possible. Um, go ahead. Yeah, walk me through. You named like three or four different programs. Um, can you walk me through each one of those? Um, international Business Leadership. It's basically our, our business administration program. Would you try to have as much of a focus on entrepreneurship as possible? Um, a lot of our students um, are in places where unemployment is pretty high. So even if they have a you know, bachelor's degree credential or some other academic credential, it's still tough to really stand out well enough to get an entry-level position. And we want to provide them with the information they need or the skills they need in order to strike out on their own and build something of their own if that's a different path that might work for them. Okay. Um, economics and public policy, and basically what, uh, what it says on the tin. Um, that's a that's at an early stage of development. That's actually um, uh, Kevin Rollins is the one who's putting that together. Um, in part, we have some pretty good books that we can use for that. There's a Ghanaian economist named George Aite who has um, released freely uh, an introductory textbook on economics that focuses on the African context, and that's very exciting for us to be able to to use that and make that available, so that not every example is oh, here's what Coca-Cola did, here's what Microsoft did, you know, to have examples that are more relatable for our student population, that's very important to us whenever we can do it. Um, and then education, you know, I described that, basically a program that would help school teachers who may have, may have marginal support, it's unclear, but to provide them with a sort of an additional perspective on things that they might try or things that they might use in order to have the most successful experience in front of a classroom that they can. <clears throat> Choose one of those and then walk me through what a typical student would experience for, is it a year, is it 18 months, is it two years? Like, how does that work? Sure, well, I'll go with business leadership since that's the, that's the one where we have all of our students at present. Everything else is still under development. Um, typically, what they will do um, is, and most of our students actually go through a learning center. So they have that, that sort of tutorial support, that classroom experience. Um, but rather than um, try to take five courses in a semester, um, we actually use what's called block scheduling, where students will take one course at a time. They'll focus on it pretty intensely. Um, and everything that they do in that course will try to relate it to what their, what their goals are. So they might start out with taking um, a management course and then move on and next they will take a marketing course and a business strategy course and so forth so that um, they're, they're, getting, they're getting enough of each particular course in a way that it allows it to sort of gel in their minds a bit better than if they were trying to keep track of a whole bunch of different things at once, especially while, um, while they're also trying to, in many cases, hold down a job or raise a family and that sort of thing. It's not too different from how, um, some schools in uh, North America have moved to that sort of model too. Um, 
I used to work for Kaiser University years ago. They were um, one of the pioneers of block scheduling. That's all they do. It actually was very successful for students. Um, the students that I worked with there said it was one of the big attractions of going to that institution was that they were able to, to have that model. Do a deep dive. That's so, right. So a student, let's just say for the first block, is doing management. Are they online with you once a week, every other week? Like, like, how's, like walk me through what, what sure. the logistics of what a student would go through once they sign up for the program. So a student taking our management course, um, again, all they have to do is pass the assessment. So if they're prepared for that, you know, then they're, they, they might just say, I've been a manager for 40 years, and I am already familiar with every concept that you could possibly throw at me. I'm going to sit that assessment. So that might be the sort of extreme end of things. Um, we make uh, materials available online, including uh, for management. It's two different textbooks that are released uh, using the EPUB format. So they display easily on mobile phones, which a lot of our students have in, instead of computers. Um, and we have a, a series of things, a sort of set of different topics that they'll go through with. A number of questions for them to think about after they have, you know, read the textbooks, um, watched the videos that we've curated for them, and so forth. So let me just stop you there. So videos and, and textbooks to read. So it's the block. Are they then kind of free within that block to study when and when they can? Anytime they want. Okay. Uh, there's there's nothing inherently scheduled. Okay. Um, we do also offer a forum where if they have any questions about the material, if they're confused about a concept, uh, they can simply ask and get a response uh, from one of our faculty members. So that pretty much they can do it based on their own work schedule and family life schedule? Entirely. Yeah. That's perfect. Now that's, you know, that's for students who want to do things uh, through a totally independent study means, which is perfectly fine. Um, but students who live near one of our learning centers can also take advantage of that. Um, and it's up to the learning center to decide, you know, they know their students better than anyone else does. So it's up to them to set like what time they're going to offer tutorial support or, or, or other resources like that. Um, why Nigeria, Uganda, and Mali? Why are those three countries that uh, are your, your first countries that for your, for your student population? Um, when we were first putting this together, um, we started to think about how we were going to get the message out that we were going to be that we we're going to be offering stuff. And you know, when it when it sort of came to, that, I was thinking, okay, what do I know about marketing in Nigeria? Well, the answer is absolutely nothing. And I'm sure whatever marketing budget that I would have for that, I would probably waste it in all sorts of hilarious ways that would produce no good results whatsoever. And that's why we moved to um, an approach where we partner with independent institutions in the various countries that you know we'd like to we'd like to help. Uh, our the 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 head of the learning center there is um, a man named Kola Bakari. Uh, he's actually a former student of mine, and when he was graduating from his program here, I took him aside and I said, "Hey, you know, um, there's something that I." that we're going to be doing in the next couple of years. And I described him the plan that we had for New World University. And I said, you know, would you be interested in working with us in Nigeria? And he was very enthusiastic about that. 
he had had experience running a, a software training center in the past. So he knew exactly what to do. And he became our first learning center for that reason. Nice. All right, so that's Nigeria. How about Uganda and Mali? So Mali, again, it was actually a former student of mine. He uh, went on to do a, an MBA in Delaware, and then he returned. Um, his family has operated um, m- one of Mali's more prominent private secondary schools for many years. And this was a natural extension of that for him. Uh, as he, his, his father was getting older and he was taking on the family business. So he saw this as a natural extension. Uganda is a different case. Um, the um, Vincent Kiza is the, um, the, the man who runs our learning center there. And he's also the director of the Free Curricula Center, which is now sort of a, uh, a component of New World University. So we work very closely. Um, I've known him for many years because we've both been in the open educational resources movement. So I, you know, um, when I was, was talking with him about what we wanted to do, he was very enthusiastic. He wanted to help. And so our relationship just developed from there. <laughs> so those three, <clears throat> excuse me, those, <clears throat> those three countries are based on your personal relationships. Um, if a fourth country, if someone wanted to open up a learning center there and, and affiliate with you, is that a possibility too? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the goal. So you want to have affi- affiliates in, in totality of Africa? I, I would love to also have them in South Asia. I'd love to have them everywhere. Okay. The idea is that we want to make sure that we don't expand faster than our capacity to, 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 to give students the attention they need to make sure that, that we do a good job for them. Um, we're not some, you know, sort of smash and grab expansion, you know, scale at all costs kind of, kind of project. Um, our goal is to actually make a positive difference in the lives of our students. Nice. Everything else is pretty secondary to that. Um, so while we're excited about the prospect of expanding to new locations, um, we're perfectly patient to do so in a deliberate fashion that gets it right. And this, uh, um, this is all in English? Yes. Part of that is... Um, open educational resources are more available in English than any other language. And uh, we've had some, some conversations about uh, converting materials into French, but it turns out that translating uh, a large set of textbooks is a very expensive and difficult proposition. So we're not there yet. Um, we're certainly open to it. If we did, then French would probably be our second language. Because Mali's a French-speaking country. It, it is French-speaking. Yeah. Um, Spanish also potentially interests us. Um, but we'll, that's, that's down, that's down much further down the roadmap. Got it. Got it. So someone finds you online. Is that, is it word of mouth? Is it Google searches? Like how are you finding your students presently or how are they uh, finding you? I should say. So far through our learning centers. Okay. Um, they have the, you know, they, since they're providing third party services that, that add on to what we're doing, they actually have the incentive to find more students because that's more customers for them. Um, and that, that was deliberate. Our, our actual costs are, are very low for students on the university side of things. Um, a typical student will sit five assessments in a year. Each uh, assessment covers the equivalent of two sort of North American style courses. Okay. Um, so that, you know, when a, a normal sort of American um, academic year would consist of 10 courses, therefore ours are five. And each one of those assessments uh, costs the student 60 US dollars. Wow. Yeah. That's, it doesn't really cost, I mean, our marginal cost of 
grading another assessment is pretty low. And so we feel that we should pass that savings on. Um, there are plenty of schools out there that want to charge more, um, you know, especially uh, American institutions that, that do distance learning. Some of them have looked into markets in Sub-Saharan Africa and their costs really aren't any different than they are for Americans. And I don't know where their student population comes from, honestly. I mean, it's the, the cost differential is just, is just tremendous. So, wow. yeah, so that's a, it amounts to about 300 us a year. And with a three-year bachelor's program, since we're on the Commonwealth model, um, that's 900 us for the entire degree. So I, I did my graduate work, my postgraduate work in what, what are called alternative universities, but um, they were accredited by the, the regional accreditation institutions here in the States. Um, it wouldn't have mattered if they were or weren't for me, but they happened to have been. I was more interested in getting the education than the accreditation from a governing, sure. government body, governing body. Um, are you guys accredited by any kind of uh, entity? Not yet. Our accreditation is in process. Our application is in process with the National Accreditation Board in Dominica. Um, that, that board has been around for a while now, and uh, they have a um, reciprocal um, recognition agreement with a similar body in the UK. Nice. So, so that's how we know that once we're through that process that we should be well-recognized basically globally. Yeah, okay. Once you're the UK, then you have the rest of the English-speaking world. Or at least the former colonies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so from 1998 to where you are presently, offering this kind of program in three countries, Uganda, Mali, and Nigeria. Um, walk me through like a couple of years from now, looking back, if we were having a conversation, give me a vision of, you know, from here where you're heading and looking back where you've been. I think that from here, um, First and foremost, we finished the accreditation process. It's something that, that everybody asks, and rightly so. Uh, I don't blame them for asking. Mm-hmm. I hear what you were saying about, you know, in your own experience, you were less concerned about that. You were more concerned about what you could learn. Mm-hmm. And I certainly understand that. I've always said that accreditation does not confer legitimacy. It's simply independent validation of it, mm-hmm. um, a difference that sometimes gets lost on people, but that's okay. Um, right now, our goal is to make sure that what we're teaching our students, what's, you know, what they're getting out of us, um, is inherently valuable in its own right. Um, we have, uh, one of our students, um, took our marketing course, took what he learned, applied for a job in marketing and got it. So I consider that to be a success completely irrespective of any sort of government validation of whatever we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, at the same point, we recognize that we absolutely have to do that in order to, to really expand to the level that we want to expand. Uh, in the next couple of years, I see us adding to our list of programs, specifically the ones that we said before. Right, right. And um, I see us adding locations um, one by one in a, in, a, in a deliberate fashion. I don't see, um, like in the next couple of years, I don't see us being in, you know, 100 more locations. You know, I would like to see us maybe be in, 10 more locations um, and keep growing in that way. You, you had mentioned that there's other American institutions of higher education that are com- competing with you in, in some of the African countries, but with a much higher cost. Uh, I have to imagine just because of kind of a market type person who understands competition that once 
once these other institutions see the value you're providing to your students at the cost you're providing to the students, they will have to adjust accordingly, which will allow even more people to come in. Is, is that not accurate or do they have enough uh, well-off people in some of those countries who they're okay spending that kind of money at elite American universities or whatever universities are providing these kind of uh, programs? That's a, that's a good question. And our, it's possible that our target market differs from theirs. Um, historically, um, there have been sort of the elites and then people at the bottom and not much in between in a lot of societies. That's changing now. There's been a lot of progress in the last, uh, you know, especially the last 25 years. Um, the, the number, what is the statistic? The number of people who um, get out of poverty every day is something like 125,000 every single day in the world for the last two or three decades. Um, and there's a, you know, a, a growing sort of middle class that's in between people who have not yet been able to emerge from that kind of poverty and the elites who are probably perfectly happy to send their kids to London or, you know, or the U S or Canada for education. It's fine. If that's what they want to do, then wonderful. Um, that's not who we're trying to serve. Got it. So you're, you're actually trying to not only um, solidify a middle class, you're actually helping to create a middle class in some of these countries through your educational programs. It would be wonderful to, to play a meaningful role in that. Yes. Nice. Nice. So uh, where can people learn more about uh, your, your program? So anybody who wants to become familiar with our institution can visit us online at newworld.ac, academic institution. Um, they're welcome to contact me personally if they wish. They can reach me at steve.forster at newworld.ac. And that's spelled F-O-E-R-S-T-E-R. Awesome. Well, thank you, Steve. This is uh, fascinating. I'm so happy that uh, Kevin introduced us and we got to learn more about your program. I wish you tons of luck and uh, look forward to perhaps talking to you in a couple of years and talking about the, your increased reach, uh, sustainable reach across the globe, uh, helping to cement and increase the number of educated folks in the middle class across the world. Well, great. I mean, thanks for, for having me on. It was, a, it was a pleasure to be able to have the opportunity to reach your listeners. And I hope we do do this again. And that's exactly what we get to talk about. Awesome. Take care, Steve. You too.